0: Welcome to the New Testament Review,
1: where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship.
0: I'm Ian Mills.
1: I'm Laura Robinson.
0: And we are PhD candidates at Duke University.
1: And today we'll be discussing Judaism, the circumcision of Gentiles, and apocalyptic hope. Another look at Galatians 1 and 2. This article is written by Paula Fredrickson.
0: This was published in JTS in 1991, and it's sort of a foundational article for what comes to be called the radical new perspective on Paul, or Paul within Judaism. The old perspective views Judaism as trying to earn their own righteousness through the works of the law, and being unable to do so. And Paul has this revelation from Jesus Christ that they no longer need to earn righteousness, but instead, through faith in Jesus, they have God's righteousness imputed to them. So God's righteousness counts on their behalf.
1: This is sometimes called the Lutheran reading. Luther scholars, we know you don't like this. It's okay.
0: The problem with Judaism is works righteousness and the solution is imputed righteousness on the basis of faith.
1: So the importance of Jesus is that he nullifies the law, he abolishes the law, he releases people from the burden of trying to fulfill the law. Now you can just be saved through faith. Why do we call it the old perspective? Well, for those of you who have been listening for a while, you might have listened to our Christopher Stendhal episode and our E.P. Sanders episode about some of the issues with this. The big one is there's there's really no evidence that Jews in the first century, uh, or ever for that matter, felt burdened by the Torah and that they couldn't possibly meet the standards and they needed some other way to get their way to God. Uh, This is our episode one. And then, of course, there's E.P. Sanders in Paul and Palestinian Judaism.
0: Right, Sanders showed that this notion that Jews thought they were earning their own salvation just isn't attested in contemporary or roughly contemporary Jewish literature. Instead, Jews understood themselves as the beneficiaries of a covenant of grace that was given to them without their earning it, and they responded to this through law observance to maintain that covenant.
1: The Torah provided for mistakes. The Torah provided for sin. There was a way to be forgiven and to still stay part of the people of God. So Paul wouldn't really need deliverance from it. He wouldn't have the sense that he was damned if he couldn't keep the law perfectly.
0: It follows for Pauline interpretation that Paul could not have contrasted righteousness imputed by faith with righteousness earned through the works of the law because the latter didn't really exist. So out of Sanders grows a number of different movements. Uh, The apocalyptic reading sort of Doug Campbell school sees themselves very much as the heirs of Sanders, as does what we've come to call the New Perspective, a label that sometimes includes Sanders, although that's a bit tricky, and that is James Dunn and N.T. Wright. They adopt the insights of Sanders and Stendhal, but find a new problem with Judaism that Paul's Christianity can come and fix. For James Dunn, that's ethnocentrism. Jews insist on law as boundary markers of the people of God, and Paul says this is no longer necessary. God's covenant is now available to all people without these badges of identity.
1: So N.D. Wright takes a very different tack on this. One of the dictums that Sanders is best known for is that Paul understood Jesus to be a solution and then he didn't really have a problem in mind for it because this problem was definitely not the problem of works of the law. anti Wright has argued that there actually is a problem that Paul sees Jesus solving and that is the problem of exile. That first century Jews had this consciousness of themselves as being in exile. Even though many of them had been brought back from Babylon and were living in Jerusalem and were living in their homeland and the temple had been rebuilt, The exile hadn't really ended, Uh, these promises of what would happen when the exile had, had completed had not come to pass, and they were looking for the restoration of Israel and the glory that Second Temple Jewish literature had promised that they were going to have.
0: So this brings us to Paul within Judaism or radical new perspective on Paul. If Sanders has said that Paul has no problem with Judaism other than that it was not Christianity, the Paul within Judaism camp pretty much says Paul has no problem with Judaism at all. Except maybe that they need to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, but we'll we'll get there in a second. For the Paul within Judaism camp, Christianity is for the Gentiles. Paul's problem in Romans and Galatians is not with Judaism. It's with, as we're going to see Fredrickson tries to demonstrate, a Christian innovation. Works of the law isn't a Jewish problem. Paul's opponents aren't Jewish conservatives, but rather some new issue that's arisen within Christian circles.
1: What Fredrickson's arguing against is the commonplace idea that when Paul writes Galatians, what he is arguing against and what he's so upset about is the fact that there is this group of Christians who are essentially still Jewish conservatives, despite the fact that they have joined this messianic movement, And want Gentiles who have joined the movement to start acting more like Jews. They want them to become full converts to Judaism, to be circumcised, and to follow food laws, and do all that. Fredrickson is challenging this image and saying that the problem for Paul is not this group of Jewish conservatives who are trying to make Gentile Christians act more Jewish. They're a group of Christian innovators who are doing something that is unprecedented in Jewish history.
0: Right. So... Fredrickson is going to make this argument in three moves. She's going to look at Jewish attitudes towards Gentiles. Then she's going to look at the reasons for Paul's persecution of the early church. And then she's going to look at Paul's opponents in Galatia.
1: The first thing that we need to establish, of course, is that Judaism is not one big thing in the ancient world. There's not a Jewish attitude towards Gentiles. There's not a Jewish attitude towards outreach. There's not a Jewish attitude towards Torah.
0: Judaism, of course, did not have views on Gentiles. Jews did. So it's Fredrickson.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there are multiple views existing in antiquity for not just how Jews would see Gentiles and how they would relate to them and respond to them, but also to what would eventually happen to them in the eschaton.
0: Fredrickson is going to divide up the material between quotidian views of Gentiles, that is, a day to day context, and the eschatological view of Gentiles, that is, what will be the place of the nations when God comes back to restore Israel.
1: Let's talk about the quotidian context first. What does is Joe Israel think about Joe Gentile? One thing Fredrickson does draw attention to is the fact that even Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles and you know, sort of advocating for Gentiles in some cases, you might argue, even Paul in Galatians 2.15 just unselfconsciously says, we who are Jews and not Gentile sinners. And this is actually not a bad characterization for how many Jews talked about Gentiles. They were sinners. Jewish literature is very frank about the fact that the way that Jews understood morality differed a lot from the ways Gentiles did. Uh, they had very different sexual ethics. They had different day-to-day practices in their labor and in their worship. And most importantly, though, Gentiles worshipped idols. This is a big problem for Jews. Like the, the linchpin of early Jewish religion is that there is one God that you worship, and his temple is in Jerusalem. And the other gods are not gods, that there is something wrong with worshipping these these things that live in pagan temples and are made by people. Gentiles are idol worshippers, and this is a problem.
0: We're going to spend the rest of this time talking about exceptions to what Laura just said, so it's worth pausing for a second to put an exclamation point after that. Because the majority of Jewish literature is very much hostile towards dismissive of,
1: critical of, and it doesn't necessarily, and I want to be really careful how I frame this. It doesn't mean that ancient Jews hated their neighbors or wanted bad things to happen to them, but they thought their neighbors were seriously wrong. Yep. So.
0: And you don't find anything different when you read Greek sources talking about Jews or Phoenicians or
1: Germans, right?
0: This is This isn't something especially different about Jews. Yeah,
1: they're not the xenophobes of the ancient world. That's that's
0: also worth emphasizing strongly, especially given some constructions of Judaism as ethnocentric and exclusivistic. Okay, but there are exceptions. Josephus and the rabbis acknowledge that there are indeed righteous Gentiles. For Josephus, who is probably a little bit more generous, these are just Gentiles who aren't persecuting Jews. And we do see, this isn't in her article, but we do see in Alexandrian Judaism some acceptance of actually idol worshiping Gentiles, which is very strange. Um, the idols are established by Moses in some sources as a sort of uh, way to keep the Gentiles busy until the eschaton. More common, probably, and what we see, for instance, in the rabbis, is righteous Gentiles are those Gentiles who come to recognize that idols are false gods. This category does in fact, exist.
1: But, of course, not all Gentiles stay Gentiles. This is another group of people who end up in Jewish literature, and this is the Gentile convert. The Gentile who realizes that their idols are not really God, that the God of Israel is the one true God, that the Torah is true and good, and becomes a Jew. And this is not a crazily rare occurrence. I'm not saying that Gentiles were converting to Judaism every day of the week, but Gentiles converted or got close enough to converting that we actually have a fair number of sources that talk about this phenomenon.
0: So Horace and Juvenal satirize the popularity of Romans converting to Judaism and Juvenal and Josephus in particular make a point that what makes this a conversion is circumcision. This is very important for Fredrickson. What makes a convert a convert is circumcision, and at that point, we should no longer call them Gentiles, for now, according to Fredrickson, they are just. Jews.
1: Yeah, this is a thing that's viewed extremely positively in the literature. When a Gentile becomes a Jew, Jews are very enthusiastic about the idea that this is a person who should be welcomed, who should be cared for, who should be uh, invited into your home. Uh, Philo particularly draws attention to this, saying that the proselyte is somebody who may have lost their family and has may have lost their country by virtue of becoming a proselyte, and they they should be welcomed. These no longer Gentile Gentiles. This is the category of Gentile that is extremely positive in Jewish literature. All of this conversion might lead us to suppose that the reason why so many Gentiles were apparently either interested in Judaism or even became converts is because Judaism was a missionary religion and that Jews were out actively recruiting Gentiles to join their faith. Frederickson does not think this is true.
0: So she's going to give four arguments that she's drawing from earlier scholarship particularly F. Hahn, um, Lewis Feldman, and others. And these are that a population explosion of Jews in our period has to be explained by conversion, not birth rates, the presence of apologetic tracts uh, written by people like Philo and Josephus, the increased evidence for anti-Jewish sentiment in Greek and Roman sources, and Matthew twenty-three fifteen, which says something like, for they crossed land and sea to make one convert.
1: Yeah, specifically of Pharisees. Let's go through Fredrickson's response to these. Uh, first, the population issue. Fredrickson argues that we just can't know enough about ancient population numbers to know whether or not we have an unusual boom that has to be explained by something other than birth rates or the or, or other factors involving the growth of population. Yeah, you know, 500 years, 2,000 years ago, trying to figure out how fast something was growing—that's it's a it's a real challenge. We or, can't really know with great detail. Yeah, yeah agreed.
0: Absolutely. On apologetic tracks, she says that. The sort of literature that Philo is writing, apologia for Judaism, for Moses being a great heroic figure, things like that, aren't in fact missional, but are instead part of just like a highbrow contest for cultural superiority. And it's not really trying to make converts, um, especially not doesn't have any mass appeal to it.
1: It's also part of community formation. Right. You know, a lot of times this literature is getting written not to bring other people into your culture, but to assure people within your culture.
0: I'm not totally sure she's right about this. We're not going to go into depth on this because I think there's a better place where we can go into depth. But um, maybe this is neglecting ancient reading culture, uh, which was anyways a group activity. You know, being able to read was not a prerequisite for learning about the contents of books. <laughs> and there's, in fact, a lot of testimonia to particularly the Septuagint being read aloud in the presence of Gentiles and Gentiles having positive responses to this.
1: The third argument that anti-Judaism in antiquity is a sign that Jews were successful at winning converts and this was disturbing to other people, Frederickson argues that ancient... Pagan writers are not necessarily just writing against Judaism in this way that would signify that they're having success with uh, on the mission field. Ancient Roman writers tend to be opposed to all kinds of foreign things. Uh, anything that it seems anti-Roman or non-Roman or Eastern...
0: People who aren't us.
1: ...tends to draw criticism and attacks from, from pagan literature.
0: Finally, Matthew twenty three fifteen, she says, We can't use as evidence for actual Jewish missionary activity because it's so polemical, it's coming up in a heated contest between Jewish and Christian groups from the Christian perspective. And so this is a sort of rhetorical jab at Jews.
1: Yeah, Matthew twenty three is just a diatribe. That's all that that chapter is. And Frederickson argues that within that context of just you know woe oracle after woe oracle, we can't take the specific accusations as historical testimony as much as they are intended to be rhetorical devices to target Matthew's Jewish opponents. Do you think that's right? That we how,
0: how does this work as an insult? So
1: here, Well, here's what I struggle with on this, is that I actually think you do find some excellent evidence for historical practices in the way oracles, like the practice of tithing your herbs, and right. then Matthew says that you should have done the former without doing the latter. Like This actually suggests to me that the, like, the idea of tithing your herbs is out there, and Matthew thinks this is a good idea. But also, you know, the the specific insult in the context is that the convert that you make when you travel across land and sea is as much a, quote, child of hell as yourself. So the problem is not that you're going to make converts. The problem is that the converts become Pharisees.
0: So the insult, the rhetorical thing constructed, isn't that they're traveling. It isn't that they're doing a mission. That's sort of the assumed groundwork.
1: Yeah, I I understand the impulse to take Matthew 23 with a grain of salt as a characterization of Phariseeism, I think this is something that sensitive readers of Matthew, and Matthew's anti-Semitism, do try to do. So things like you tithe your herbs, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law, you should have done the former while doing the latter. Yeah, I think that probably does attest to an actual practice. Um, The the rhetorical
0: part of that isn't that they tithe herbs. Right. That's the real thing. Right. The rhetorical part is that they're neglecting the weightier matters of the law important stuff. That's the thing we should maybe be skeptical towards. I don't think any scholar of ancient Judaism would say, well, Matthew says they tithe. We can't believe that they tithe. Right.
1: Yeah. So the thing to be skeptical of in 2315, I would suggest is that the convert the Pharisee made is a child of hell, not that the convert exists in the first place. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So this brings us to a larger point. She says, if Judaism was a missional religion, why don't we know the name of a single Jewish missionary from antiquity, since we don't, she argues, ancient Judaism, in all of its many forms, does not seem to have had a missional mentality. But, and this is Ian speaking, isn't this also true of Christianity, before Gregory the Wonderworker? Do we know of a single Christian missionary by name, uh, McMullen? Rodney Stark even, have drawn attention to the fact that we don't have named missionaries, people who spend full time traveling around just to convert people until Gregory the Wonderworker. No one denies that Christianity was a missional religion, a religion that went out and tried to get people to convert. But Christian mission doesn't look like full-time paid travelers who are distributing tracts. Christian mission looks like Paul going into a city, setting up shop, and talking with people he happens to run into. And this, I would suggest, we see plenty. Um, Ananias, the Jewish merchant, who goes to Adiabene, this is talked about in Josephus Antiquities 10, and ends up converting the royal family. The king decides to become a Jew under the influence of Ananias. And his mother is very upset about him getting circumcised. So Ananias agrees that he can follow all of the Jewish law except getting circumcised. And this is going to be important in a bit. God will forgive him for not getting circumcised because he knows he's doing it out of fear of the people. So he's going to become a Jew. And then the story goes on. Eliezer, another Jew comes along, sees the prince reading the law and says to be truly a worshiper of God. You need to get circumcised. And so he does. But what do we have here? We have two different Jewish figures, both named, traveling around and converting other people to Judaism. This is what early Christian mission looked like. And I don't know how we can deny that of ancient Judaism on her arguments, especially given the widespread testimony in Christian, Jewish, and pagan sources Two Jewish missionaries. This is most importantly cataloged by Feldman, who gives us like 20 pages of ancient testimonia to Jewish mission.
1: It's all well and good to say that Ananias, the Jewish merchant, is not a missionary. He's a merchant. But that's kind of how Paul was. You know, you could just as easily say that Paul wasn't a missionary. He was a tent maker. Paul explicitly says that when he goes to these churches, he's not being paid for by the community and he doesn't take money from them. He works his own trade and supports himself And he does missionary activity by supporting himself. Uh, And this is probably how the vast majority of Christian converts were actually made. Ancient life, uh, especially for the impoverished, could be pretty itinerant. Uh, People tended to go where the work was or where the food was or where the peace was, you know, when you get to the Jewish war later.
0: Right. So to clarify, we're saying that on the grounds she denies missional consciousness to Judaism, one could also deny it to all of Christianity. And that doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that most scholars would want to do. Now, to understand the rest of her argument, and I think her argument is worth understanding, and we're going to draw attention to some stuff we really like later on, you need to remember that that is our critique. For her case, you need to accept that there is no pre-Christian Jewish mission to the Gentiles. And it has to be said Martin Goodman has published a whole volume, well, he's got one major chapter, arguing the same. Her view is not by any means idiosyncratic.
1: Uh, not all Gentiles who sympathize with Judaism in antiquity are converts. A Godfearer is someone who is voluntarily participating in the synagogue without being a full convert.
0: That is uncircumcised.
1: Right. A Godfearer might obey some of the food laws, attend synagogue service, participate in some of the festivals, but this person might also continue to sacrifice to pagan gods alongside of the Jewish god. They're very clearly very welcome in synagogue. They're often on donor lists. They're they're fully welcomed, but they're not fully Jews.
0: And that's crucial to her analysis of Galatians.
1: That so that's context one. How Jews feel about Gentiles in day-to-day life, what they want Gentiles to do, so on and so forth. Then there's context two. What do Jews think will happen to Gentiles? in the age to come. What's going to happen to the Gentiles then?
0: Isaiah 54, 3. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess the nations and settle in their desolate cities.
1: In Micah nine fifteen: I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. So this is one poll of how uh, Jews thought Gentiles would fare in the Eschaton, and that's that they are destroyed.
0: Those same sources, however... Give us another picture. So in Isaiah 2 2 through 4, we see In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. I'm going to come back to that. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem.
1: Yep. So this is from the Little Apocalypse in Isaiah 25.6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples.
0: Zechariah eight twenty three. Thus says the Lord of hosts: In those days, ten men from nations of every language shall take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment and saying, "Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you."
1: So here's the other extreme. In these same sources, these are the same books. uh, The Gentiles are not destroyed. Uh, In fact, they are gathered in. They gather at Zion. They hear the Torah. They want to learn the ways of the of Torah.
0: So this suggests to Frederickson that destruction is reserved for the wicked Gentile, and for the other Gentiles, there's another story. But, she says, group two, the non-wicked, the other Gentiles, are not converts because they're not Gentiles. They're Jews. So we're now looking at the mass of unconverted Gentiles, that is, Gentiles. And she's drawing attention to the fact that what we don't see is the Gentiles come in and they all get circumcised. It's important for her that that's never explicitly mentioned. Instead, what we have is God comes back, restores Jerusalem, restores Israel, and the Gentiles see this and want to get in on the action, and they come in, and they get to worship God alongside the Jews. Another way of saying this might be, the God of Israel saves Gentiles apart from the law. She makes a strong claim that there is no tradition about eschatological circumcision of the Gentiles, with a small footnote saying Paul's opponents are going to be the exception, which we'll get to in a bit.
1: The linchpin of her argument is the idea that the eschatological hopes of Second Temple literature do not include Gentiles becoming Jews. There's never a time in Jewish literature where the circumcision of all Gentiles and the conversion of all Gentiles to full Judaism is predicted or expected. Instead, all Gentiles make a moral conversion, not a halakhic conversion.
0: 56 seems to be a problem for that, because it describes God gathering in others, particularly foreigners and and eunuchs, and gathering them into a group that holds fast to the covenants, observes sabbaths, and gives offerings.
1: The covenant is such a standard way of talking about circumcision, I can't imagine that we could really read a reference to Gentiles keeping covenant that would exclude their being circumcised.
0: She flags this as problematic. She discusses this text in full, and this is the only one she gives the primary languages for. She argues that Isaiah 56 refers specifically to people who have already been converted, who God will then in the eschaton recognize. But I think to get that reading, she has to omit verse 8. It's a tough text to interpret, to be sure. It's hard to tell When we are in eschatological time and when we are in current time, um, Zechariah 14 envisions, then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths. That's funny. I mean, she she mentions this, of course, and says, well, this just mentions the festival of booths. But here we have them keeping a festival that celebrates God's special relationship with the Jewish people.
1: And I also wonder if there's a bit of a false distinction happening here between keeping Torah and becoming circumcised. The Ananias example is particularly important here. The debate over whether or not Ananias' convert needs to be circumcised is whether or not God will forgive him for not being circumcised, which suggests that a Gentile not being circumcised is is some kind of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if you have uh, seen that the God of Israel is the one God and that you need to follow his ways, not getting circumcised is a sin. And no. I don't think that Fredrickson notes this. Yeah, uh, yeah. She,
0: she cites this as an example of a God-fear, of someone being allowed right. to be, uh, be Jewish observant without being circumcised. But this is explicitly flagged by both Jewish figures in the story, as being a bad thing. Yeah. Ananias thinks there will be forgiveness for failing to be circumcised, but he thinks it's a failure, and Eliezer does not find it acceptable.
1: Right. Well, and I also think the question of what a group of Jews in a synagogue will tolerate from outsiders is not always a helpful way for what Jews in a synagogue thought people should do. Right. So, but where all this is going for Fredrickson is that God in Jewish literature saves Gentiles apart from the law. Gentiles don't need to convert to Judaism and become full practitioners of the whole Torah in order to be saved. They have this other path by which they're saved. That's the payoff.
0: By the language she's using, she's signaling already that this is where Paul is going to get his theology from. In fact, this is where Paul's predecessors, according to her, are going to get their theology from. That Jesus has come back, and as a result, the Gentiles can now come in, to worship the God of Israel without becoming Jews. Fredrickson has demonstrated to her satisfaction that there is no Jewish mission to the Gentiles, and there is no Jewish motive to get Gentiles converted, because Gentiles who aren't actively persecuting Jews will be brought in once Israel is restored. That's useful to get laid down as a framework. Um, And I think even with our objections, parts of this will be useful for understanding Paul in a bit. Now, this gets us to Paul. Um, She's specifically going to be paying attention to Galatians 1 and 2, uh, where Paul narrates his history with the pillars of the church, James and Peter and John, um, as well as controversies he's had subsequently um, with Peter in Antioch and with the church in Galatia. Now, Paul recounts that he previously persecuted the church. But, as Sanders has importantly drawn our attention to, persecution, punishment, by a Jewish authority, implies that the people he is punishing are also still Jews. A Pharisee has no authority to walk into a diaspora city, or even any other city in Roman occupation, and just start persecuting or punishing Gentiles. This only works. You can only get flogged in a synagogue if you intend to remain in that synagogue. So, Paul is persecuting Jews. Why is he doing this? And she's going to entertain a number of proposed reasons and reject them. We're going to do these real quick.
1: The, the first proposed reason for why Paul was persecuting Christians is because they were teaching that the arrival of the Messiah meant that people didn't have to follow the law anymore. There's not really any good evidence for this, so this is not a good reason. Early Christians did continue to observe Torah. Matthew is an excellent example of this.
0: Also, Luke twenty three fifty six explicitly says that Jesus' followers continued to observe the Sabbath even after uh, Jesus has died. Acts shows them going to the temple. We see this throughout Christian literature. Right.
1: Another proposed reason for why Paul might have persecuted Christians is because they proclaimed a Messiah who had been crucified. And this Messiah would have been cursed by the law by virtue of being crucified according to Deuteronomy 21 and 23, uh, which is incited in Galatians 3.13.
0: So this is the passage that says, "Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree.
1: There's no really good evidence that this was a particularly objectionable thing for ancient Jews. You know, Paul talks about the scandal of the cross, but the idea that dying through crucifixion made you particularly abhorrent to Jews is not well-attested. A lot of
0: Jewish heroes, a bunch of Pharisees, for instance, were also crucified and were continued to be raised up as heroes for Jews. There's nothing to suggest that Jewish contemporaries would have been particularly incensed by Jews admiring somebody who was crucified.
1: Right. So, the reason that Paul gives for why he persecuted Christians is his zeal for the law. But what does this actually mean? one possibility of that is that Paul is persecuting Jews for, for telling these uh, Gentile converts to Christianity that they don't have to be circumcised. What Fredrickson argues, based on the evidence we have from the god is that this doesn't make any sense. Jewish worshippers of Jesus and Gentile worshippers of Jesus would be at this point in Christian history still within the larger Jewish community. and We've already seen that Gentiles who join up don't have to be circumcised if they're not ready for that yet. So there's really no reason why Paul would persecute. People
0: for that. Right. And this is one of the places where I think she's drawn attention to something really important. Yeah. It doesn't make sense for Paul to be going and persecuting Jewish Christians for admitting God fears. Um, that is for admitting worshippers of Yahweh who don't want to get circumcised because that is widespread throughout Judaism. Um, one of the most common explanations for why Paul was persecuting the early church is doesn't make any sense if we pay attention to jewish attitudes towards gentiles
1: right
0: it's not an issue to have people worshiping with you uncircumcised
1: yeah so what Fredrickson proposes for why paul would have been persecuting early christians is because they were proclaiming a messianic message in context where a messianic message could endanger the larger jewish community frederickson points out that wherever we have Christians being persecuted by Jews, it tends to be in situations where there's a mixed population and Jews are the minority. Uh, In Jerusalem itself, there's a Jewish majority. There's no serious danger that Gentiles are going to be frightened by the growth of this sudden apocalyptic and messianic movement and turn on the Jews within their midst. This does happen in places like Antioch, though, where uh, the the position of the Jewish community seems to be a bit more precarious.
0: We're going to come back to this. Uh, We want to finish getting her logic out. Somebody has come to the church and has started insisting that Gentiles need to get circumcised, and Paul is opposing this. These are not, as we argued in our J. Lewis Martin episode, the law-observant mission to the Gentiles, are not conservatives, are not the earliest parts of the church who have carried over a conception of conversion from Judaism, and are now using that, plus Jesus, but rather innovators. This is a new movement that has risen up within Christianity, probably in response, she suggests, to the delayed parousia. Jesus was supposed to have come back yesterday, and his failure to do so must mean we've done something wrong, and so maybe we need to focus, as Jesus seems to have done, on the people of Israel, and These Gentiles hanging about need to be made part of us.
1: Historically, most people have read Galatians as Paul fighting with Jewish conservatives who also happen to be Christians, who are pushing Gentile converts to become circumcised um, and join Judaism completely, in order to actually be Christians. And Paul says, no, 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 Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become part of this Christian church. They're fine just the way they are. And Fredrickson argues that there is no conservative movement within Judaism before Paul that would have required Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be worshipers of God that this supposed conservative Judaism movement could have grown out of. And instead, what has happened is everything uh, until the Galatian opponents show up on the scene has gone pretty much exactly according to Jewish norms. That there are Gentiles uh, coming in and worshiping God without being circumcised, and there are Jews who are part of the community who follow the whole Torah. And the only thing that's really changed is that they think that Jesus is the Messiah. So far, so standard-issue ancient Mediterranean uh, Jewish orthodoxy. The problem is when we have this new group of people who seem to be unsettled by the delay of the parousia and have decided that the way that they have always done things and the way that they're doing things now in light of the uh, the Messiah uh, is not working, that Jesus has not come back, and they've decided that th- th- that basically the Gentiles can't stay in their lane anymore. They can't stay Gentiles and worship Israel's God. They have to become... Jews or they aren't really part of this community. Good. Let's talk about some of our issues with this. Right. This is it's... an
0: important argument. This needs to be reckoned with, but ultimately I don't find it plausible. Yeah. Um, Lightning version would be Eliezer in the uh, Adiabene episode as recorded by Josephus and Galatians 5.11. Eliezer comes across this Gentile king who has been told he can wor- observe all of the law save circumcision and God will forgive him for that because he's doing it to maintain his rule. And he says, that's not good enough. You need to be circumcised to be a true Jew. This suggests that although Jews certainly tolerated and in some cases even approved of god fears, that some Jews certainly held up a higher ideal, thought that as good as that might be, the ideal still was circumcision as both Jews in Josephus' story seem to indicate. Closer to the heart of the issue is Galatians 5.11, where Paul says, But my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Douglas Campbell, we've referred to before, has an article on this arguing that the best way to read this is suggesting that Paul himself previously preached circumcision and that I think presents a problem for argument, but even apart from that, Paul is saying that the thing he got he is persecuted for, and there's some debate about whether he's being persecuted by Gentiles or by other Jews, but let's set that aside for a second, he's being persecuted for not preaching circumcision. And that certainly flies in the face of a proposal that the reason the early Christians were being persecuted by Jewish leadership was preaching a messianic movement that would offend the imperial senses of the romans paul here seems to clearly indicate that what occasions the persecution is failure to preach circumcision
1: yeah there's some other issues too one is the question of the motivation of these uh, jewish christian innovators who've suddenly decided that gentiles actually do need to be circumcised frederickson proposes that the problem is the delay of the parousia i don't see evidence in paul's writings for, for concern about the parousia being delayed. Uh, I actually think Paul seems to think it's right on schedule and it'll happen any day now. If Christians were innovating and in deciding that Gentiles needed to be circumcised, I don't know if we have a reason for why that would have happened. At least not one that's clearly attested in the New Testament texts.
0: Yep. Um, finally, and my favorite part of her article, is section three, where she goes over the way that these Isianic texts... These other prophecies about eschatological inbringing were used and refashioned by Paul. She points out that in Isaiah, the restoration of Israel motivates Gentile conversion. But Paul and other early Christian authors like Luke, (laughs) she says, restructure these eschatological prophecies to fit with the facts. That is, the Jews aren't accepting the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So, Paul reasons, God has hardened their hearts so that he would go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will make Israel jealous, and then God will come back and restore Israel, Romans 11. So what's happened here is things have been flipped. Instead of the restoration of Israel motivating Gentile conversion, Gentile conversion will motivate Israel's repentance, bringing about God's restoration of Israel. And I think that is an absolutely fascinating insight.
1: It's hard to use this avenue, I think, to find a Paul who is really fine with Judaism as it is and really wants to leave Judaism completely intact and sees the Torah as binding and valid on all of Israel, regardless of whatever the Gentiles might do. I I think it's hard to get there with Paul. I understand why people want to find this Paul. Right.
0: I find the Paul within Judaism very attractive it'd be really nice to have this paul um who had no issue whatsoever with judaism
1: I think particularly you know when when you work on these texts uh coming up with a way to read the new testament in a way that doesn't denigrate its its sister religion judaism it's a high priority for scholars it should be a high priority um particularly for christian practitioners of or or christian scholars but I don't think this is it. Yeah. And uh yeah.
0: Justin suggests there were some such Christians in the 2nd century, in the early 2nd century, there were Christians who had basically this view. I mean, it's a little bit hard because we don't have a lot of information, but had basically this view of Judaism and Christianity. So these people existed. Unfortunately, as a historian, and I do mean unfortunately, it doesn't seem to me that Paul was one of these Christians.
1: What what Fredrickson is trying to create is a world where, from the very beginning, Jews were free to be Jews and Gentiles were free to be Christians, and neither group was really pressuring the other to step out of their lane. I think that's where Fredrickson's trying to go with this, and this is the version of early Christianity that she wants to recover. Right. Yeah.
0: More on this, you should really listen to Joel Marcus's retirement lecture. It was our um, two episodes back. We posted it. He very much deals with this whole issue. I, too, would worship in a church that preached something like this. But I'm not sure I could write an article arguing for this as a historian. Um, And for me, as a Christian, there has to be some difference. And that opens lots of cans of worms. But for this show, for the purposes of today, we are acting as historians and trying to recover what is the most plausible reconstruction of Paul's theology.
1: That was dense. (laughs) That was
0: very thick. Yeah. No more Paul for a while. Yeah, thanks for keeping
1: up with us, guys. (laughs)